Welcome to episode 130 of the G2 on 5G. It's the first of 2023, and it's the latest insight scoop on everything 5G. We cover six topics in about 20 minutes, and it's brought to you by More Insights and Strategy. I'm Will Townsend, and joining me again this week is fellow analyst Anshul Sag. Let's get started with my first topic. So this week, Cradlepoint announced it, a new a new solution within its portfolio, and it's something that's been um, kind of in the in the planning stages for quite some time. Um, I've spent some time with Cradlepoint, but this is their uh, NetCloud private network solution. And so my question is, this allows Ericsson to sort of broaden their reach with with private cellular, but how does it stack up with Nokia and others? So. Nokia, you know, from the traditional big infrastructure provider perspective, um, they've really had the lead here. They've had Nokia Enterprise. We've talked about them on prior podcasts. Very mature business. Um, but what I really like about the Cradlepoint acquisition by Ericsson is that it gives the broader Ericsson company a dual path. Uh, Cradlepoint is positioning this for lighter IT staff. So when I think about that, I think of a mid-market company. And um, mid-market companies are not going to have the resources or the capabilities to um, to manage and deploy, you know, infrastructure at scale, especially cellular infrastructure that they're not accustomed to uh, managing and deploying. It's not cellular is not Wi-Fi. So, um, from my perspective, it's pretty strong. You know, one size does not fit all, and so having a dual path, I think, is really going to help um, Ericsson in the long term. And um, it's also interesting, this was uh, an article that I, that I caught this week. Um, Ericsson has sort of scoped, and this is a forecast from another analyst firm that, that I'm not gonna mention, but they believe that the global market for private LTE and 5G will top 8.3 billion in revenue by 2026. And um, I think that might be a conservative estimate, but I don't know if you caught the announcement or if you have any thoughts here, buddy, but would love to hear your opinion. Did, um, mostly because I wanted to be prepared this week and not sound like a, a buffoon when you ask me some of these questions. <laughs> right. um, but I think it's interesting. First of all, the service is available as of yesterday. Right. Um, so I think it's interesting how quickly they launched. Um, and I know which firm you're referring to in terms of the projections. Yeah. Um, but what I do think is interesting is that they're starting with CBRS. Um, yep. and I think it's, I feel like, you know, they're launching in the U S first and they're using CBRS. And I think that might be a function of the fact that CBRS is kind of positioned as a, you know, private network first, um, technology or, or I guess spectrum, mm -hmm. um, and, and that there's a rich ecosystem and industry built around CBRS for private networking. So this feels like um, it, it's a right fit for the market and for the spectrum, yeah. um, but it'll be interesting to see how that, you know, plays out long-term. The one thing that I'm always curious about is, you know, Ericsson providing an actual service um, and, and doing these kinds of things as opposed to being an infrastructure vendor only um, yeah. and how that will work out, you know, long-term within Ericsson's, um, you know, overall, ecosystem of, of companies that they own and you know what's what their overall corporate structure is because I feel like whenever companies like Ericsson you know maybe deviate a little bit away from their core business um, if there's any kind of uncertainty they just you know toss it on a chopping block and yeah yeah and, and excise it away so it'll be interesting to see how long Cradle Point sticks around and 
whether or not Crater Point just becomes another, you know, division of Ericsson and becomes a big business for them. Yeah, well, you know, I, you know, I, like I mentioned, I do spend, you know, some time with Ericsson and Cradle Point. You know, my perspective is, you know, th there is some integration going on. Th there was a, a new business unit organized to help sort of coordinate these efforts because th this is new for Ericsson, to your point. Um, so I, you know, I think time will tell, but, you know, based on what I see, they're putting all the right things in place to, to really go at it. And really, um, I, I do like the dual path strategy because, you know, they're positioning Cradle Point for, you know, sort of those mid-market accounts. And then you got Ericsson that has all the expertise, obviously, in powering um, some of the largest mobile network operators in the world, providing a, you know, a solution that will, will address more complicated environments, more complex environments. Um, combinations of outdoor and indoor and, and and that sort of thing. So, but to your point, you know, time will tell. But I, I think it's a great start for them. But with that, um, let's let's go to your first topic. And I know you and Patrick Moorhead, our principal, were at CES. I didn't make the trip this year, but you have some updates you want to provide. Yeah. So CES, as usual, is a crazy show. Um, they finally announced the new Razor Edge five G. Um, which is actually the first commercial um, device that has Qualcomm Snapdragon G3X in it, which is their 5G gaming chip for handhelds. Yeah. So the Razer Edge was the first one to launch with that. They showed it off um, actually back in December to a lot of people who were attending the Qualcomm Summit, but we couldn't talk about it until CES when they launched it. Um, and then there were tons of XR headsets. Um, there were no headsets that were announced with 5G integrated. Um, however, um, during CES, I did meet with a company uh, named DigiLens, which makes um, optical waveguides for AR glasses. And they actually have entered the AR headset market. And that headset will, it's called the Argo, will actually have an optional 5G connectivity option mm -hmm. uh, via smart headband. So that is a technical 5G AR headset. Um, HTC also announced new headset. Um, there are lots of uh, headsets from Vuzix um, and the usual suspects, but uh, on the, not, not much on the 5G aspect of that. Uh, and then there were all new phones, lots of 5G new phones, um, including uh, Motorola's new ThinkPhone, which is kind of like a uh, cross-branding between uh, the Motorola um, brand and the IBM ThinkPad brand, which Lenovo acquired. Right. Um, so it's the ThinkPhone, the Lenovo Motorola ThinkPhone, because Lenovo has owned Motorola for quite some time now. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Samsung also announced the Galaxy A14, um, which is a $200 entry-level Galaxy phone. Um, only has a 6.6-inch screen with a 90 hertz refresh rate and a 720p resolution, but it does have a very large 5,000 mAh battery and a 50-megapixel camera. So that thing will last probably days without a charge. Uh, TCL announced the 40SE, um, which I'm not even sure is 5G um, because it has a MediaTek Helio G37 inside. Mm -hmm. um, and then Samsung uh, talked about some of their Flex hybrids. Um, and then HTC, um, or not HTC, OnePlus talked about the uh, OnePlus 11. Um, not really giving much details about it, but I can't say whether or not I have one in hand already. Um, <laughs> and then and then we also had 
um, a lot of Wi-Fi 7 announcements. Um, there was uh, some routers from ASUS. Uh, there were some routers from Aris. Um, even Xiaomi had their one that they announced right before CES. And then um, the only other thing I would say is that there was a lot of AI uh, on the PC and smartphone side in terms of like, you know, improving capabilities. Mm -hmm. And then also uh, Qi 2 was kind of announced, which is part of the wireless power consortium. And they said that they're going to add the Apple MagSafe into the Qi standard so that all Qi chargers in the future will have MagSafe built in, which means that both Android and iOS will be able to share basically the same MagSafe connector for oh. wireless charging. Oh. Um, and then I have another, you know, another announcement um, that uh, Bullet said that they would be uh, imp implementing a uh, satellite messenger on a future Motorola Define phone. Um, for a $5 per year subscription for the emergency connectivity, but there will be more satellite news from CES later in the podcast. Huh. Very cool. Well, um, those are quite a few phones. You know, I thought, you know, they might have, those manufacturers might have saved that for, for MWC, Mobile World Congress in Barcelona. That you and I would plenty, plenty more to announce then. Yeah, there'll they'll be, be a slew more here at the end of February, 1st of March. But let's move to my second topic this week. And I want to talk about some news that's been breaking around a possible T-Mobile acquisition of Mint Mobile. And would it be a smart move? Now, Ryan Reynolds, the actor, you know, Mr. Deadpool, he's he's behind this. I believe he has a, an equity stake in this. And uh, it's sort of a clever, you know, lifestyle brand, if you want to call it. Um, super low cost and that sort of thing. You know, what's interesting, I didn't know this, is that Mint uses T-Mobile's network um, through an MVNO agreement, obviously. And, um, you know, some speculate that, you know, this might be smart for T-Mobile, you know, to, to make a, a move on a, on a prepaid business because it could bring it in-house, increase profitability, et cetera. But um, I don't know. It's, uh, it, it's, it's interesting, you know, when... You know, we've been talking about T-Mobile and, you know, their need to really kind of focus on their enterprise service delivery. And, and now there's talk around the possibility of a, an acquisition of a prepaid service. Now, I, I will say that neither Mint Mobile nor T-Mobile had any official comment on these rumors. But I'm wondering if you've heard anything on what your thoughts would be around this. I haven't heard anything, but I would say that Mint Mobile definitely... Um, is a well-marketed organization. Mm -hmm. uh, I believe Ryan Reynolds is somewhat responsible uh, to the tune of 20 to 25% of the company's ownership. Yeah. Um, so he owns a good chunk of that company. Um, I think this is really, you know, more of a play into capturing more of the profits um, that Mint Mobile is getting from being an MVNO. Yeah. And I think that uh, there's just more of a push in general, I think, across the industry to consolidate a lot of these prepaid carriers. Um, you know, T-Mobile did acquire Metro PCS um, right. before, and I wouldn't really put it past them to try and also acquire Mint because Mint is one of those companies that um, doesn't really have physical locations. Mm -hmm. um, and it's pretty much an online only MVNO. Right. Um, but it would be really interesting if they could offer Mint Mobile um, physical in-person customer service. Right. Um, which would, you know, potentially give them the opportunity to, um, you know, I don't know, offer a higher tier service. But I know that, you know, when it comes to these prepaid services, um, people are just looking to pay the least. Yeah. Um, 
And I'll be honest with you, uh, a lot of people, they just want to have connectivity. They don't even care how fast it is. Yeah. Um, but when I try to use um, Visible, which is a Verizon prepaid service, mm-hmm. um, I was pretty disappointed because even if you get 5G, they cap you at 200 megabits per second, Yeah. Um, which for some people is good enough. But for me, is not. I need it as fast as possible. Yeah. And um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see if this actually pans out. But um, the number will be interesting. Uh, I can't see it being a particularly enormous number. Right. Um, but I would also say, you know, it's still probably in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah. And it, this isn't the first time there've been rumors around someone acquiring men. I mean, there was another operator and I'm, I'm forgetting um, who that was, but um, at the time, you know, Mint was trying to tout like a $600 million valuation, which I think is extremely too high, but I will say that it's interesting. I, I didn't know this about men. I did a little bit of research. They they're actually the first MVNO to launch eSIM, and when you look at the the balance of their um, subscriber base, it's nearly 50-50 between Android and iOS. And so that's interesting because we've been talking about you know Apple's move to eSIM in the United States and how that's going to ease provisioning. Um, AT and T is leaning into that with its TriCricket service. So um, eSIM could be an interesting, you know, development. And, um, you know, it's, it's, you know, certainly like to your point, um, they're an online only operation and um, eSIM is going to be pretty critical long term to continue to keep that provisioning really, you know, fast and easy and quick and efficient. But with that said, let's move to your second topic. And you want to talk about um, Qualcomm. And um, they had a Snapdragon satellite announcement that you want to talk about. I think you also want to talk a little bit about some demos and other things tied to CES. I'll let you take it away. Yeah, so this is all Snapdragon satellite. Um, Actually, they drove us out into the middle of the desert. um, (laughs) And we were all joking that they're going to bury us out there. Like in Um, like in the hangover movie when they when they're out in the middle of the desert somewhere. Yeah, we were out in the middle of the desert and um, one of their VPs. Francesco Greeley, I think his name was, um, took a Qualcomm reference device. Um, since there aren't any phones yet commercially capable of doing this, yeah. um, and he showed us kind of how this demo works. And basically, what it is you've got the phone. Um, technically, it's an unlimited service at this point because they haven't really figured out the model. Um, but you basically type your message, press send, and then it tells you to go find the satellite. Um, mm-hmm. My understanding is. The speed of the satellite network, which is Iridium, uh, allows you to send up to 144 characters, basically like an SMS. Yeah. Um, you can send it over like an SMS, or it can be sent like a OTT message, whether it be WhatsApp or Signal or Telegram or something like that. Yeah. Um, but basically, when you send the message, you have to lock on to the satellite. Um, and I'll say their system that they're using for that um, works really well, because okay. the first couple of demos he tried to do it locked on so quickly that he wasn't even really able to show it to anybody. Um, it took like you know two or three seconds to do the lock on. So like wow. he raised his phone up and it locked on immediately. Yeah. Um, but basically uh, these satellites take about 17 minutes is my understanding. They go horizon to horizon. Yeah. Um, and what they do is these satellites are interconnected with each other through a network so that the, the if you miss the, the first satellite, it's already interconnected with the next one. So you can easily switch between them and get your message out. And their service is basically designed so that OEMs can repackage it and and integrate it into your messenger on your device. Um, This is only for Android right now. Um, And they're saying it's mostly for Snapdragon-based devices. 
um, but they're not ruling out other other equipment um, yeah. because it's really the modem that's bringing this capability, even though some things are integrated into SOC. Um, but the really interesting part is this is not something Qualcomm is going to offer direct to consumers. It's for OEMs to decide. Um, my understanding is it's going to be a free service for emergency purposes, regardless of who offers it. Garmin will actually be the one quarterbacking the emergency services, which they already do with their in-reach satellite service, which already has a 24-7 emergency service. Um, and my understanding is to do the two-way messaging, which is what makes this really interesting. Um, you may have to pay a subscription fee, but yeah. it's really unclear who will be charging for it and how. Um, and I think that's the real biggest question out there. Um, yeah. There are OEMs that are already building devices, smartphones or other devices that will have this capability um, by the second half of this year. Um, but they haven't said who those OEMs will be and whether or not they're going to charge a premium. I expect this will be something that they offer at the most premium tier. Um, and they might even offer it for free for a year or two until they mm -hmm. really figure out what demand is like. But realistically, um, you know, if you're in the U.S., and you're not living in a rural rare area, you're probably almost never going to use this right. other than for emergencies. Um, but if you do live in a rural area, this could be a really great way um, to communicate with friends and family in places where cell signal is pretty spotty. Yeah, you know, I have a Garmin uh, satellite navigator when I when I head to Colorado, and um, that is a subscription service, and you can do it. You can do a monthly or you can do an annual, and so and that and that's for obviously for two way. So I expect that, you know, for two-way, that's a monetization opportunity, right? And I and I agree with you. I mean, do, do they share with you, like, you know, Qualcomm, what the bill of material cost is for um, for this feature? They didn't give a clear number, but they basically said that it's very minute um, and that it would, it really just comes down to, you know, having some more filters um, and basically supporting the band. It's just that a lot of devices don't support I think it's band, at the L band, it's the L yeah. band. And that's like 1500 megahertz or something like that. And it's just not supported by any devices right now. Yeah. So basically you're just building in support for that band and obviously optimizing for satellite communications rather than terrestrial. Um, right. but based on the commercial, the, not the commercial, but the based on the test device that Qualcomm had shown, um, it performed very well. And I would expect that, you know, if an OEM that has great experience with building RF um, would probably do a very good job with this as well. Yeah. Cool, man. Well, let me go to my third and final topic. And I want to talk about uh, Ericsson again. And the question is, have they done an about face with OpenRAN or is it just a tactic to thwart um, OpenRAN's adoption? So this is a light reading article that I, that I caught this week. And you know what's interesting is that um, Ericsson's chief technology officer uh, recently stated that he believes that OpenRAN could be uh, constituting up to 40% of radio systems by 2030. And this is really interesting because historically for the last few years since this conversation began around OpenRAN, um, you had, um, you know, you had Nokia that was bullish on it and you had Samsung Networks that was bullish on it. But Huawei and Ericsson have been sitting on the bench here. But um, but it's interesting because this sort of flies in the face of convention. And there are some that have accused Ericsson of, you know, in these like, you know, the ORAN Alliance and, you know, these, these other kind of working groups and steering committees, 
they've accused Erickson of stalling things. And Erickson's been very staunchly, um, you know, refuting, you know, those accusations. But um, I don't know if you caught the news this week, but it's just it's just interesting. Is there is there something behind all of this or is uh, is Erickson finally realizing that they need to get on the bandwagon? What do you think? I think this is more of a a play to their investors. Yeah. Um, I think this is a way for them to show that, um, you know, our share price, which I think has been pummeled uh, in the last year, um, you know, they, they're looking for a way to recover their share price. And a good way to talk about that is to get on the open ran bandwagon. Mm -hmm. um, whether or not they're com actually committed to it is an entirely different thing. Yeah. Um, but I think that they, I think they know that they're going to have some kind of solution available um, and, and be competitive because I think they know there are going to be places where they don't have a choice. Right. Um, and, you know, I don't really see open rank going away. So if they're not going away, they might as well adopt um, or at least offer it as a solution. But I think they're just realizing that if they're not participating, there, um, yeah, there's an opportunity, there's an opportunity cost, right? Potentially, yeah. you know, what's interesting just to balance out the, the conversation since we're talking about Nokia as well. Um, I know Tommy Udo, um, he's head of um, networks at Nokia. Um, he's been um, a little less bullish on open RAN, speaking to some of the things that I've spoken to in Forbes articles around um, integration challenges and that sort of thing. Um, so, you know, there, there are definitely two sides of this coin here. Um, there are a lot of positive um, benefits that come from open RAN, certainly domesticating the 5G supply chain, um, you know, uh, lowering potentially uh, capital expenditure in RAN deployment. But, you know, the challenge is, will integration eat that up? You know, the cost of integration eat that up? And, well, will the disaggregation need to be re-aggregated? I think that was a quote uh, that Tommy made in a, in a recent article that I, that I wrote as well. But, but it's interesting. I think at the end of the day, I think, you know, if you're an infrastructure provider, you're going to have to at least have it in your, in your hip pocket or your back pocket. Um, you can lead with whatever solution you believe you need to lead with based on the opportunity and, and, and the situation. Like we were talking about CBRS earlier, um, you're going to have small deployments. Uh, in fact, I'm I'm posting a Forbes article on venue um, connectivity and sports and entertainment um, venues, and um, you know I I talk about CBRS towards the end of the article, and I talk about um, Comcast leveraging CBRS and their PAL license to deploy private network within Wells Fargo Center in Philadelphia. And then I also talk about um, a guy who's near and dear to my heart, Max Gold, that um, did a DIY network because he was so frustrated with the Verizon performance at Minute Maid Park that he actually put up a DIY, you know, using Pollen Mobile and Helium and, uh, and actually, you know, stood up a 5G network that had better performance than Verizon during the playoff run when my Houston Astros won the World Series. So, um, so it's interesting, you know, and I think you're going to have to have it in your back pocket um, to offer that choice and have that flexibility. And to your point, not miss out on opportunity. But with that said, let's go to your third and final topic. And of course, you would continue this conversation that we 
<laughs> that we started last year, the whole altimeter and FAA thing. And like, hey, you know, let, let's, you know, we won't talk about, or I'll just mention, but we won't go into, you know, gross detail about um, the issue with, with the FAA and, um, you know, the grounding of flights this, this week. But um, I caught this news as well, but you want to talk about uh, the FAA setting a guideline by 2024 for altimeter upgrades. So I'm going to let you take it away. Yes, this <laughs> ugly, ugly problem has reared itself. It just won't go away. <laughs> refuses to go away. Um, what's really interesting is that um, apparently the FAA believes that they can get this fix finished and completed by 2024, which I think, you know, is very optimistic. Yes, um, very. But um, I think this is also kind of a nod to the carriers who have, uh, you know, willingly lowered their transmission power at airports. Yep. They're saying that um, they they think the total cost will be $26 million um, and that they think it's for um, replacing radio altimeters on around 180 air, airplanes mm -hmm. and put, putting new filters on to another 820. Yeah. Um, and that they they estimate the costs to be about four thousand dollars for installation of the filters, and then another eighty five dollars per hour for that installation. Um, Seems like a drop in the bucket to me when the FCC collected eighty something billion dollars in C band, right? I mean, is the FAA wanting the FCC to fit the bill? Did did they uh, disclose that? Um, it seems like they the FCC could have. Um, yeah, but I don't really know where the expectation is that this funding is supposed to come from. Sure. Um, but I think the FAA just wants it to go away. Yeah. Um, so they're putting a number on it. Um, they actually had to set a whole bulletin for what they expect to be necessary. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, you know, some people are obviously saying that you know, twenty six million dollars is nothing. Um. Well, it's something. It'd be something to you and I, but I think, you know, in the big scheme of things in the federal government, I think these two agencies can figure it out and quit airing all their dirty laundry. But <laughs> yeah, I, I think ultimately what it is is you have, we've talked about this before. I really think it comes down to the airlines didn't want to pay for it. Right. And yeah. Um, they just pushed as much as they could on the FAA, yeah. who then push on the FCC. And, yeah. and made these made these crazy um, statements, which still to this day we don't really actually have any concrete evidence of real no, interference. No. Yeah. Um, so I, I think this is a you know the planes aren't flying out of the sky in Europe. So it's it's quite clear um, that they've done a good job there, and you know they didn't have to shut down networks. So hopefully, you know this twenty six million dollars goes a long way. I have a feeling it won't be enough. Yeah, but I also have a feeling that it might not be enough because, you know, the airlines who are doing the the upgrades, you know, aren't really um, optimizing for efficiency when doing these upgrades. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I think any plane is going to get serviced over the course of the next two years. So um, I why not lump this in to like the service maintenance or something the, yeah. like the filters you're talking about, you know, I mean, come on. Yeah. So, so I, I think this is viable. I just think that the airlines have to want to do it and we'll see if they do.
Um, yeah. But I think at this point, everybody just wants to move on. And yeah. um, maybe the airlines are the last bastion of, of, of holdouts, but yeah. I'm not sure they're going to have any choice in the future. So yeah. we'll see what happens. Yeah, I mean, let's eliminate these exclusion zones because at DFW Airport, there's a part of the airport where I think it's like 3G, although they're, you know, the mobile network operators are sunsetting those 3G networks. But before the sunset, I mean, I was getting a 3G signal on the on the um, the people mover as you move from terminal to terminal at that huge airport. But yeah, let's just put a fork in this and be done. But Hey, buddy, it's been great to get back together. I'm glad you had a successful CES, and we we just got our first podcast of the year complete. Why don't you take us home? Absolutely. We hope our viewers and listeners found this week's topics interesting. If anyone out there would like to provide insights for a future 5G topic for another podcast, please reach out to us on social media. Will's at Will Town Tech, and I'm at Anshal Saad. We hope you have a great weekend, and please tune in again next week.